This episode is sponsored by Spira, a Verdantix Green Quadrant Award winner. Get the information, tools, and advice you need for your environmental, social, and governance journey at spira.com. And this episode is sponsored by Fiscal Note ESG Solutions' award-winning ESG platform, Equilibrium. Create, control, and communicate your ESG 360 through Equilibrium, a holistic sustainability data management solution. Visit eqm.ai. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Verge 22 conference in San Jose, California. On this week's edition, some of the sounds of Verge, including Cristiana Figueres on the concept of deep listening, Alexandria Villasenor on why companies need to meet youth where they are, Charisma AC on the inequity of climate research, and Don Wright on deep sea mining. We're on the verge this week on 350. It's October 28th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me after holding down the fort back in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I'm missing you this week. Are you having fun? Uh, we had so much fun this week and we so missed you that sorry <laughs> that life intervened and you are uh, were unable to come join us. But um, you did great work at your end on the editorial side and on prepping some of the speakers. So um, another Verge is uh, one, one for the record books. And this one it was. It was almost 4,000 people. More than 550 speakers. That kind of blew my mind, and and a couple hundred sessions or so, um, and uh, a, a great crowd here at the San Jose Convention Center. I enjoyed watching the the keynote program from afar, um, which is incredibly dynamic. I mean, I, I enjoyed actually. I'm going to point to what your session. I, I really appreciated, um, and we'll hear from her later uh, within the uh, the clips. But I always love hearing from Alexandra Villasenor. She's uh, so inspiring. I met her. I had the opportunity to meet her th- three years ago. I think the same event you did. Um, in New York at, at Salesforce Tower yep. and Climate Week. Yep. Yep. And and you know she she shared with me her inspiration and you know it was just it's just so inspiring to me to hear from individuals like her uh because of her perspective and just because of her passion i mean i it always makes me feel more inspired to be better at what i do when i when i have a chance to interact with 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 someone like her and i appreciated hearing more about their relation in her relationship with salesforce and how she helps um provide advice uh, on her terms, yeah. you know, that 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 was um, a really interesting session. I, I, I think more companies should be spending time interacting, engaging with youth on their terms, on their terms. Yeah, I agree. So Alexandria Villasenor is the founder and executive director of Earth Uprising. She's 17 years old. When we heard her in New York at Climate Week, she was all of, I think, 13 years old. 
Um, and I was in the same room with you at the time Paul Pullman spoke and Oriana Huffington and 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 Alexandria Villasenor. Um, she just kind of blew everyone's mind. And again, people here at, at Verge this week, uh, the panel we did uh, with her and Patrick Flynn from Salesforce, and you'll get a clip of, of Alexandria in a little bit, um, it was uh, people were coming up and saying, oh my God, that she is just an amazingly thoughtful, uh, engaged and passionate, and, and dare I say wise, 17-year-old. Uh, um, yeah, we talked about uh, bridging those gaps between corporates and, and youth and not in a tokenized way. How do you do that in a way that isn't, doesn't feel tokenized, uh, but actually brings uh, youth to the table in the ways that the, they can and should be. They are the future that we're all working for. They need to have a say in all this. So that was a great session. Uh, what else stood out for you on the main stage, Heather? Ooh, so many things. Well, I really have, uh, I'm, a, I'm a scuba diver. And I was so excited to see the session on ocean, on the ocean and the ocean's role in climate tech and why we, we need to be spending a lot more time researching the depths of the ocean, understanding the potential that it holds as a solution, understanding the link it plays and, and has with, in terms of climate change, I think just... I mean, the bottom line is we don't understand the ocean. We understand other places more than we understand this this thing on our planet. And um, it just was a revelation for me to hear um, Don Wright, who's the chief scientist at ESRI, and Eolani Wilhelm, who is uh, now the assistant director for Ocean Conservation, Climate, and Equity with the Office of Science and Technology Policy with the executive office of the president. So she's um, got his ear, and, and it sounds like the Biden administration has got some things up their sleeve with, with respect to the blue economy and, and um, more support of research and potentially um, development activities. Uh, so at, that for me was a, a highlight. I really enjoyed that. What about for you? Um, yeah. Well, I think it's important, first of all, to... Um point out to the main stage, which is 90 minutes uh, each of the days, uh, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, and Thursday this week, were much more high-level yeah. and cross-cutting kinds of things, mm -hmm. uh, a little more, more inspirational, perhaps, and informational, uh, where the, the more than 200 sessions, uh, breakouts, yeah. and other things were much more in the, the weeds, if you will, of of fleet electrification and renewable energy procurement, <clears throat> sustainable food systems, carbon removal technologies, uh, and on and on. Um, so that and buildings, of course. So we had a great session with the uh, always lovely and charming John Picard, uh, <laughs> uh, with along with Sarah Neff uh, from Lendlease about uh, the today's technologies that are are catalyzing t tomorrow's buildings. Uh, so I think that's what we really got into. That's the, if you will, the uh, tofu and potatoes for, for Verge. Um, and, uh, that's quite an image there. Sound like a good, doesn't sound like a good combo, so I'll, I'll retract that one. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, um, it was uh, the inspirational, you're going to play some clips that you've pulled um, from your perch in, in New Jersey uh, from the main stage sessions that we had. Um, and by the way, just going to say they're all women uh, that you picked. Oh, why, why was that? Well, first of all, because they had a lot of great things to say. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good start. But, you know, there, there are a few dudes up there, too. I'm just I'm not it's not it's it's an innocent question. I'm just curious. 
did it just happen to be that way or was that you know what when i was thinking when the things that that that, hey listen i'm i'm looking for sound bites i just felt like um some of the things that came out i mean i have to say gavin mccormick was also really compelling that was a great Uh, fantastic so the the founder of watt time which is doing this great work um you know, on on emissions and and underst- and helping companies and and individuals understand the exact emissions of the electricity they're using to be able to see using, sa- using satellite data and sensors and uh, optical all sorts of things it's using all sorts infrared. of things and and absolutely he's and the the thing that that that's also important about Wattime is that they're a part of the organization's contributing information to Climate Trace, which is this global effort um, that's that's got all sorts of different data sets coming in. So there's, there's this, it, and that's, um, you know, backed by our friend, Mr. Gore, uh, Mr. Al Gore. Um, there's, so there's a lot coming from climate trace in the, in the months ahead, months and weeks ahead. Um, as far as things that, un- that improve our understanding of the planet. Um, but frankly, I gave Mr. McCormick a, a story on the, on the site this week. So I just wanted to share the love okay. if you will. Um, so, but I, I just, the other thing, and I, I was just kind of looking at these clips here, um, there was some uh, three things that sort of thematic things for me on the stage, which, which really touched me. It was one is the, the number of talks that were about how we need to stop talking past each other, how we need to, how suggestions for how we can communicate as a community better um, in, in terms of helping win over support for climate solutions, how we can listen um how we can change our behavior. So there was a, a set of comments that I pulled that are sort of all in this sort of behavioral vein, like things about the way we act and 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 how we can become better humans and how that will help the climate movement. And then there was a whole bunch of great, of course, being Verge being what it is, um, commentary on research, on just the need for more research. And then also, and I'll cue it up in a moment, but this the talk from uh, Charisma AC from UC Berkeley, I just, I had no idea how inequitable the data we use is, like where mm-hmm. it's coming from, how we benchmark it. It, it, reminded, it reminded me when I was listening to her talk of how um, for, a long, for the longest time in medical research, and I, I, I can only speak to the United States, I don't know about other countries, but they would do all of these studies and have all of these benchmarks on things and they almost always were using men and not women. They were not, they were like research for the longest time, like heart diseases, for example, was all using men as the, as the subjects. And so, you know, we, we forget that there's this, this whole other gender <laughs> that, by the way, has a very different anatomy. Um, so it just, for the longest time that happened and this, the, her comments made me think about that uh, and just. Yeah, I was quite I was quite surprised by some of her revelations. Well, let's get into it, Heather. You picked a uh, half dozen or so yeah. uh, clips. Uh, why don't you set them up for us, and we'll go through them one at a time. Okay, then. Um, so I'm going to just set up uh, the the ones that I was talking to about behavioral change and um, the social part of this first. And the one the first clip comes from Cheta Chakraborty. She's the president of We Don't Have Time. And she addresses the sort of dual crises we're, we're dealing with right now, the, the uh, climate crisis, but also the communications crisis and why we need to rewire how we discuss and think about the path forward. 
We are in a dual crisis. We are in a climate crisis, we are in a communications crisis. For us to solve the communications crisis, we need to acknowledge and recognize that we fall prey to the biases of, our, of the context in which we operate. We are influenced by things outside of the actual decision at hand. And knowing this knowledge will make us that much better at communicating and closing that gap between the perception, or rather things not being so scary because we can't see it, or it's far in the future, and the reality of what we're facing and what we have to do to proactively prepare to ensure that we are setting ourselves up to adapt to a world that is warmer and to make sure that those increasingly warmer scenarios never come into existence. So I charge you, I charge you to actually take the time to challenge the perceptions that arise. Think through why you are overreacting or overestimating versus underreacting or underestimating the actual base rate statistics of various issues that come up in your day to day, in your work, in the, as it relates to climate change. And charge your family and friends with this too. Find out how well calibrated you are. Do the research. Look it up. Actually, look up the base rate statistics. Maybe you, know, you happen to know about shark attacks, but if you don't, look it up. Do your due diligence and close that gap between your perception and your reality. If we begin to transform ourselves as individuals, we can be that much more effective in our companies, help companies internally, across the value chain, across sectors, across society, and really encourage this widespread behavioral change that aligns to the reality of the risks we're facing that aligns to the science and the evidence and the facts. And what will that bring on? Political will. The policymakers will be that much more receptive to push through policies that are aligned to the reality of what we're facing if they know they have the backing of the public, the backing of society. So this is really important that we take the time to do it. It's the missing piece of the puzzle. This is what I really hope that you will take away from this talk. Recognize that we are really infallible. Have compassion, because we all are wired this way, regardless of where you are in the world, we all have this innate wiring of our brains, but we can overcome it by thoughtfully taking the time to think through what, how we close that perception and reality gap. And while we're talking about communicating, uh, we have to talk about listening. So Christiana Figueres, as you mentioned before, the, the founder, founding partner in, of Global Optimism, but of course, the, this person at the center of helping um, you know, get the Paris Agreement negotiated. She was at the center of those discussions. She did a great conversation. And one of the things that leapt out with me, for me, was her thoughts about the concept of deep listening and how she had to adjust her own um, style in order to make things happen at that meeting and, um, and how we should all be thinking about deep listening, not just hearing, but, but really reflecting on what someone is saying without having to answer. One of the practices that I put quite a bit of energy into in the lead up to the Paris Agreement was to what we call deep listening, so termed by our teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. And deep listening actually has to do with not just hearing what the other person is saying, but listening deeply without judgment, without the overlay of our mental filters of what is right and what is wrong, and really being both from your mind as well as from your heart open to listen deeply to what the other person, the other country, the other CEO, the other governor, the other mayor of a city, whoever it is that you're um, talking to, um, really understanding 
what is their need, what is their interest, what is their long-term view. And to do so from a place, as I say, of openness of both heart and mind. That is a very different listening to simply asking someone, well, what is your position on paragraph three, clause C of this legal text? Um, it's a very different quality and brings the conversation to a very different level because in deep listening, you begin to unearth where we are in common the humanity that we have in common, the deep needs that we have in common. And from that space, it is then so much easier to begin to weave the different threads of interest and needs together into a, uh, into a coherent tapestry, let's say. And then, of course, we, we talked her up quite a bit at the beginning, um, but Alexandria Villasenor, the... Uh, you know, she had a lot of thoughts in her particular talk. The thing that leapt out with me was her comments about how companies really need to understand youth and meet them where they are. She had this great phrase, the politics of professionalism. And she, she sort of talked about going into companies and having, you know, they're expecting someone to be dressed up in a suit and talk in the same language. But, you know, that's not the point. The point is to listen to a different perspective. Um, so here is her commentary from her great conversation with you. Yeah, I think that one of the first things I noticed when starting to work with businesses and companies was there was very much so this um, politics of professionalism, where it felt like youth had to show up to the table and talk the same way they were. We had to um, communicate in the same way. And it, it kind of took away from what we were really pushing for. And I think that it's important for businesses and companies when working with youth to realize the differences in the ways that we organize. We're talking in ways of the bold action that we need, what we need to do for a planet. And sometimes uh, businesses come in and they talk about, well, what they only think they can do. And so it's important to first understand that relationship, but then also the conversation when you engage with a young person, it doesn't just end after that. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Uh, you give me hope for the future. The conversation needs to continue after that and constantly being engaging, especially around when we have um, global conferences that are coming up like COP and other spaces that are so influential like that. It's important to continue the conversation with youth. Well, let's talk about that conversation. What is it about? What do you want it to be about? What does it need to be about? Mm -hmm. I think that there's a couple different things. I think, first of all, youth bring a different sp perspective to the table. Um, and the reason why is because when we get into these conversations with businesses, we think outside of the box that a lot of um, adults ha are, have been ingrained in. And they think inside the system, but youth come in and we think outside of it. And so some ways that youth have been engaged is, for example, companies um, have created youth councils. So the the foundation side of IKEA, um, Inca, has created a youth council that I'm a part of as well. And um, one thing that we've done with them is we've had we've had conversations with them about their supply chain, about um, about their phase one, two, and three. Um, and so talking about more the way that they are working as a company and what they need to change. And I think that when you bring youth into the conversation, you need to get to that. You need to really get into it instead of just talking about the surface level. We're taking action. 
And then we have three different research segments. We're going to start with uh, the one I was just referencing a moment ago from Kruzma AC, the associate professor. She's a, an associate professor at UC Berkeley. And I was just struck by her comments on the inequity of the climate data that we're using and how it's collected and how it's analyzed and why there's a hole in our, our understanding of, of the climate crisis. And the same inequalities, the same global inequalities that we see playing out in terms of impacts also drive research into climate change. A study was done last year where scientists use uh, machine learning to review 100,000 climate studies and found something, they were trying to estimate the human impacts of climate change, how many people are already experiencing the effects, but they found something even more surprising, that two to one uh, climate studies are mostly done in Europe and North America compared to places in Africa or island nations that are losing their, their territory to, to sea level rise. So there's a hole in our understanding about the impacts of climate change. Similarly, um, there's e this inequality even affects our sensors like satellites. Um, so the, the very sensors that read the sun's reflection from the Earth's surface and tell us what the temperature is, where we get our readings and estimates of average global warming, they rely on algorithms that have to be ground-truthed by validation stations on the ground. Well, there's an inequality in where those stations are located. The vast majority are near universities that have the funding in the global north. There are only a handful in the entire continent of Africa, and yet Africa has vastly different um, patterns of rainfall and weather than in, uh, than in um, the global north. So even our understanding what, and what that disparity, what um, scientists are starting to talk about in terms of that disparity is that we're underestimating how much global uh, warming is actually occurring. The planet is hotter than we think it is, and we're experiencing more impacts than we think we are. The ocean conversation had a number of different topics that were addressed. One of the things that really leapt out with, with me was the comments by Don Wright, uh, the chief scientist at ESRI, about the outlook for deep sea mining and why we need to go slowly. Yeah, that's a, a very uh, good question in terms of uh, the so-called seabed mining. And uh, there is potential on the seabed for copper, manganese, cobalt, and nickel. Not so much for lithium. But I think this, there's consensus in the scientific community that we need to go very slowly on this. And in many areas, we need to pause because we've just given you the statistics in terms of how little we know about the ocean how little we know about the seabed. And we would just like a bit more time to characterize and to understand that environment before we dive in, pun intended, to, uh, <laughs> to mine these areas. We don't know uh, the consequences yet. Uh, we need these, these studies. There's also evidence that with ocean trawling uh, for fishing, that is kicking up on the seabed the equivalent of the global aviation industry in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. So we want to be very careful there. That, that is a published study uh, by colleagues of ours uh, from the National Geographic. And so we just need to, to take it slow uh, is, I think, the consensus of the scientific community. And also, with regard to lithium, 
There are some very interesting solutions that are on our doorstep. For instance, I live near the Salton Sea, uh, which is a place that is uh, environmentally uh, in much trouble, but if handled properly, the Salton Sea could provide all of the U.S. supply of lithium just from that one site mm -hmm. if we are able to handle the geothermal extraction properly. If we can extract lithium from existing geothermal energy plants from those brines and then also to create low salinity ponds for the birds and other species to recover in the Salton Sea, that is one answer uh, that we would really, we being uh, scientists, would like to see uh, pursued, and it is pr being pursued right now with, uh, with uh, state funds, uh, a budget uh, uh, surplus of state funds. So that, that's my take. And finally, uh, I'm going to cue up a clip from Aelani Wilhelm with the White House, um, also on the ocean, the topic of the ocean. And this particular reflection is about why we need to step up research about the deep sea, the deep, deep, deep depths of the ocean um, in order to better think about the climate uh, solutions we can derive from the ocean. And here she is. Right. Well, if we want to do some of these tech solutions, right, if we want to actually tackle climate, then we need monitoring, right? How do we know what the ocean's doing for sequestering? How can we realize that 20% potentially or more of carbon capture? What might be happening to the biodiversity um, if we're doing that? We, we need to monitor all of that, right? We also need to go to these places. It's not just cool to go to the deepest part of the ocean. It's actually necessary, right? How do we understand these parts of the ocean that we really don't so that we don't make decisions um, in the future or even now without fully understanding what might be then irreversible decisions that and that are created that could have been avoidable right and if you're thinking about you know technologies that we want to do offshore wind or energy development or we want to site a clean aquaculture facility we need to know about bathymetry right we need to understand what's on the floor so this science is not only cool and important because we don't know it, but it's super practical. Right? If we think about like what are the best solutions, what, what I love about this gathering, and it's my first Verge conference, right, is that we're talking about solutions. And how, what are the best solutions? In my opinion, it's when imagination meets evidence. Right? You need both. And you can get those both from the kind of data and the visualization um, products and tools. And you can get it at the bottom of the ocean and looking. And whether it's sad to see that, uh, that bottle, it also is going to drive us to think about how does that not happen kind of moving forward, right? And I think, you know, bottom line is we need these solutions now. Never before has humanity faced this confluence of crises that we find ourselves in. So never before has really there been the driving need for us to really bring these kinds of necessary solutions together that create the solutions without causing more harm. Well, thanks, Heather, for those great segments uh, that help bring some of the main stage flavor to uh, to the three, 350 audience. Uh, we'll be posting those videos over the next uh, couple of weeks, I think, uh, of those actual uh, main stage presentations and a lot more coming out of Verge 22. And 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization stories and events we mentioned. And while you're over there, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. Uh, send us your comments, your questions and tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Happy Halloween. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Spira, a Berdantic's Green Quadrant Award winner. Get the information, tools, and advice you need for your environmental, social, and governance journey at spira.com. And this episode is sponsored by Fiscal Note ESG Solutions, award-winning ESG platform, Equilibrium. Create, control, and communicate your ESG 360 through Equilibrium, a holistic sustainability data management solution. Visit eqm.ai.